everybody. This is Heather Gold, and this is episode 93 of Tumble Vision, the show that places the people back in the center of business, tech, and culture. I'm coming to you live from the highways of the Bay Area, and we've got with us tonight, uh, as always, co-host Kevin Mark. Hi there. Also in San Francisco, or Bay Area, and unfortunately, Deb Schultz is feeling well tonight. She'll rejoin us again, please. And we're bringing you tonight a lovely guest, another expat of all Commonwealth tonight, Yost Graham, originally Hello. from... Hey, what town, what town are you from originally? Uh, I'm from London as well. From London. And now also the Bay Area. Yes. What the fuck is tumbling? What is tumbling? Tumbling is an old Yiddish word, and it really refers to someone who was hired to get people to dance at a wedding. And so we've used the word as a kind of convenient way to look at um, how people live in the networked world, in a post-hierarchical world. So that's how we've come up with tumbling is kind of a useful word to describe what people are doing to make things work, especially in communal or collaborative environments. And Yo's has a lot of experience doing that. Yo's, you've, you've worked in London for a long time. You grew up in London? Yes, I grew up in London. I um, uh, got into so yeah, and and, um, and you have I, one of those wonderful, amazing educations that we're always hearing, like from Kevin Marks with his classical references. No, no, unfortunately, <laughs> um, I uh, yes, I'm Kevin. Kevin got the the, the proper decent education. Um, I'm uh, another North London Jew, which means that I went to North London Jewish schools. Um, oh which wow. Are, Almost universally appalling. Um, they are, but does that mean you know Hebrew and that kind of thing? I do know Hebrew. I I was raised Orthodox. So, oh, wait, well, did you know that Deb was? Do you know Deb Schultz? Yes, I know. We've been, we've talked about it a few times. And, oh, well, I'm um, sorry, she's not here tonight. Yeah, it's uh, but 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 yeah. So there's lot lots of the both British and Jewish. So I do lots of tumbling with lots of apologies. <laughs> right, basically, I, I have the, the overactive apology gland, which only seems to have got worse now that I've landed in the Bay Area. People right. seem to love it. Bru- Bruish. You're Bruish. Exactly. exactly. Gosh, I'm Canadian. We sound right. pretty good, too. Thank but you. I don't think we sound as convincing as you guys do. You guys sound fantastic doing it. Well, there's, there's the thing is that the, the, the thing I found, I don't know, if, Kevin, if, if you can if you can identify this as well, I'm guessing you can, is that um, something about being in America really sharpens your English accent. You turn into a bad Hugh Grant impression. Um, yes. You are, I, I, I'm, I'm very aware of um, having, knowing, having friends who have been here you know, 20 years that they sound like Terry Thomas. You know, they've gone even further back in time and they, and they sound like they, something from the 1950s. So, yeah. um, yes, because... People like it, and they they they're nice to you when they they're doing accents. And so you see, it but you sound more, more London in you than I have. I think I can I can hear a bit more. Yeah, of that I mean, I, I basically sorry. Go on. I just can ask you what you think the communal value is of apologising or the ability to apologise because Brits and Canadians, I don't know about Aussies, are pretty good apologisers, and Americans aren't exactly famous for apologising. Yeah, I don't know where it comes from. Um, it's uh, and I, I apologize a lot, even for a British person. I think it's something. That's a Jewish thing, I think. 
well, possibly. I think it, okay. I think it's much more of the kind of affectations put on since since landing here. You know, because mm. um, in 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 Britain, the, the the way you actually apologize is to tell people to sod off. Most of the sod off. And, okay, so this is your upbringing. You're in Orthodox school and getting a supposedly not great education. And then, how do you start working? Were you programming growing up? How did you get involved in tech? Yeah. I was, it was basically my dad and my grandf and his dad, um, uh, kind of getting computers when, when I was young, we had an Atari VCS as it was called in the UK or 2600 in the US, uh, a, a series of Sinclair machines, you know, ZX80, the ZX Spectrum and, and that, you know, my dad started teaching me basic when I was six years old on the ZX80 um, and got me hooked. Lots of playing around on the spectrum. And one of those things is it, it, is that Britain in the 80s, um, there was this whole British computing culture um, with British computer companies making computers uh, that was bizarrely parallel, but, but mostly quite separate from America. So in Britain, in America, you had, you know, Commodore machines and you had Apple II was hugely popular in the US. And you also had, uh, then it came to in the mid eighties, like Nintendo and, and things like that. And in Britain, um, there was much more of kind of Sinclair acorn machines like the BBC micro. Um, the Commodore machines were the ones that really crossed the gap, but you didn't really have many apples in the UK at all. Um, do, you, you know, do you remember your first like social computing when, when yeah. you experienced it as a really social thing? Yeah. So it was um, in the early eighties, you could attach like a 1275 board modem to your spectrum wow. and log on which would to, make it, the early like mid-90s dial-up that some people in here look pretty exactly. fast i bet Exactly, completely i mean you could watch the screen slowly paint out the text you know <laughs> and and we, there was something in the uk called prestel which um wow. this is i'm now going to be fine if you were to map kevin's brain you would see all these nostalgia <laughs> neurons firing <laughs> uh, right now um, and, uh, they, so there was the Prestel, so there were kind of chat rooms on Prestel and, and various chat boards, but also there were MUDs and there was a MUD. I remember getting a, what's a, what's a this, MUD, if you don't mind, uh, sir, I will, done. by the way, ask lots of times. That's fine. Because everyone who listens to the show isn't super geek and you know what, I, I, I don't have the qualifications you guys have. I mean, multi-user Dungeon. dungeon so yes yeah, sorry let me let me clarify and you're absolutely right this does it, it's it's does need clarification so this is like the text adventure games interactive fiction like like zork and infocom games and things like that and this is a multi-user version of those so it's pure text in terms of saying you are in this room you see a grew and a lamp and a bird in a cage and then you type w to go west and it takes you to another room and this was a multi-user version of that so you would see other people walking around and you could chat to them and it was all in pure text and and, it, and it's actually this is a good a good thing to talk about because there is direct links from this into much of my latest career or later career all the way up to second life um which is where i work now um because Sorry. And Second Life being the most visible sort of virtual community on the exactly. web where it's rendered dimensionally continued visually. And it's which is something that people many people imagine is what the internet was gonna look like for everybody or what right. technology was gonna have for many people sort of three dimensional visual world they go through with an avatar. 
Yeah, especially because virtual worlds were the things that cinema, that movies really jumped onto because it's one of the only ways of showing what goes on inside a computer in a way that is exciting to a cinema audience. You know? Because a because- lot of what happens socially, I think that's exciting. And I think this is true not just in computing. Actually, this is true in, in party scenes and in communities. Maybe, I don't know what your North London community was like. But I think it's often internal. I think it's often... A social experience is something people experience inside to a degree. So it's not always visualized. Yeah. Um, It's right. That's exactly. And there's, that's the, the, you, this is the problem with movies like Hackers, right? Um, Which to my shame, I've only ever seen clips of, never actually seen the whole, I have seen the whole of War Games, but not the whole of Hackers. But Hackers try to do it with all kind of uh, as analog- like metaphorical or, uh, uh, to what was going on in the computer, which was actually radically different to desperately try and make it exciting. Um, whereas, and then you had things like Lawnmower Man and various other right. movies about VR, where it's like, oh, there's actual graphics now. Look, we can show things. And, and, and books like Neuromancer as well, which, um, uh, you know, had imagined all these kind of graphical so simulations. So in your really early MUD or text-based games that were connected through really slow modems to other people, what were you, was making it possible to get to know another person or what were some of the things that, um, that were, that maybe are things you still do or you still use when you're helping build an environment now? Um, lots of, well, a lot of it is, is, Part, okay, part of, of what I think um, text games brought us, which I think is still relevant today and still relevant, especially in a lot of the communities that I've worked in, is that text allows you to do a huge amount of expression with very little work and a huge amount of world creation with very little work. So one of the things, one of the examples I give is, is that if I want in something like Second Life or another 3D world to have a helicopter crash to the ground and then a whole lot of goldfish to fly out of it and then swim around and then tap dance. Um, that takes, you know, several days or weeks of modeling and animation work. Whereas on a mud or a moo, it's simply typing that one sentence and saying, you know, a helicopter crashes into the ground and goldfish come out. And so it's the same with, with novelists, the, the, the fact that you can create a whole world with sentences rather than needing to get out modeling tools and paintbrushes and, and things like that. And because... Um, and, and this is something that does not go away. It keeps coming back again and again and again in, in one way or another. The fact that, that text is how we do storytelling. is the, the primal method of doing storytelling, primal method of communication. And it's also the easiest one. It is the one where you can wing it the fastest and improvise the fastest. Um, and so it keeps... It, some of the things that have come up again, again, it's, it's the... The nation of things you're describing, Yost, and I'm interested in your take on this, Kevin. It's not just that you're using text to say, okay, this happened or that happened in a world. It's a sort of collective agreement that you're going to create world together. That's part well, that, of what's that was, that was the thing that, that Mud changed. Because the, the classic adventures were one person would, would write a code and, you'd, you, and you, know, you, it would, you would have you'd be able to say go north and pick up lamp and, and, and walk around inside them, but you were there on your own. And, and the, the original Mud was, was Essex University in 85. Um, and that was somebody said, oh, well, what if more than one person can be in this thing at the same time? And you could run into other people and meet them and, and then, then you could try and explore the thing together. What would that be like? Um, and that... Um, that sort of bootstrapped the whole the whole idea of 
um, multiplayer games. Um, I think before that, you know, the, the only other multiplayer games at the time were, were like, you know, Pong, where you had, you were standing next to each other with controllers. Whereas this was um, a, a fictional world composed of text that you could manipulate. Um, and later on with the, with the, with the moves, which is mud object oriented, you right. could actually add things to the world that, that interact with people as well. You could write little bits so, of code. To and them. so one is sort of exploration and, and building base. You're doing that collectively. And the other is sort of, we give you a fixed environment. You get to bop around in it. Um, right. in referring to some like Pong, uh, say entertainment business overall, and even things that have, the thing, the thing that's, the reason we have this show and part of what is from business to entertainment is the growth of anything that's broadly collaborative uh, is is more popular, more deeply engaged with, more it seems more important people than merely things that are crafted for their uh, consumption. No matter how you know beautifully those things are made, they don't seem to create community as quickly. Well, I think one of the things is that it's very easy. Um, it's almost, you know, to put it the other way around, it's, it's almost like you can't stop communities occurring if you give people the ability to type text to each other. Um, That's and, uh, people will construct them from scratch. I think you guys have got a couple of really good examples of that. So, yeah. you, know, you were saying, for example, maybe the Starship Titanic example found it pretty right. interesting. You worked on a couple of projects with yeah. the uh, infamous and. Uh, uh, now passed on Douglas Adams, who right. wrote Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, among other things. But yeah. I love the, the thing you were telling us about the um, the unexpected place where people decided to get together because Kevin says they could take text with each other. Right. So, so just a quick outline um, for everybody out there, which is that uh, I used to work at a company called The Digital Village, which Douglas Adams was creative director of. And I was uh, a web geek working on a game that they did called Starship Titanic, which was a CD-ROM game, kind of like Myst, you know, lots of big shiny graphics. What year graphics. is this? Like 93? 97. 97. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's... Um, uh, one of the things we did was we did a kind of brochure site for the game that imagined that it was actually a brochure for trips on the starship. And then there was a secret intranet, so-called secret, that we created for the company, this fictional company. And then we kind of accidentally, in quotes, leaked the password to this thing and people rushed in to have a look around this intranet that we'd constructed. And about five, six layers deep into this thing, there is a, a forum for the employees of Starstruct Incorporated. Um, and this was literally a forum I coded in, in half a day's Perl, really bad Perl. Um, and left, and we basically launched this thing and left it. And then six months after launch, we came back to find there were 10,000 messages in there. Now, what people had started doing, one, so one of the things that happened is that Douglas, Douglas's online presence was very much a kind of accidental tumbling, which was fascinating to watch mm. because the thing about his humor is that it's always given the impression to people that it's a quite a niche kind of humor, that people, it's something that only a few people get, and therefore, um, if those people kind of get together, they'll have a good time because they're like-minded. And this is balls, right? This is complete balls. 
Douglas's humor is incredibly widely applicable. It's huge. Loads of different kinds of people like it. And they actually, the, the, the diversity of, of those people is such that, no, you're not going to actually. Well, you will meet a lot of like-minded people, but you'll also meet a whole lot of people who, who actually don't have that much in common with. But this meant, because this, Douglas's humor gave that impression, it meant that any time Digital Village set up some kind of online community, we'd be swamped by people because... Um, I think, oh, have we lost somebody? Okay. Um, yeah, I think we just lost Heather. Um, uh, so uh, we we would always get people rushing in to, to take part in these things. And this was a, per- a, a perfect example was with H2G2, right? So H2G2 was um, a site that we created in 99 that was always bringing yeah, sorry about that. I, we might need to pause here for just a second while I try to... Get... Hi, this is Heather Gold. The best way to reach me now is to call or text uh, 415-320-1309, whether you're in the U.S., Canada, or wherever. You can also reach me the most quickly online. Sorry about that. Um, uh, I think... Can you continue? And, uh, Kevin, yeah. uh, just... Uh, sorry, I was also uh, muted because the fire alarm went off again, so this oh, is going to be one of those nights. It, 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 it really feels like being in, 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 in um, Douglas Adams' bureaucracy or something. Uh, yes. yes. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, so, yeah, where was I? Um, H2G2. So we, we, the, the aim was to do, to do something that was an online uh, encyclopedia, kind of like The Hitchhiker's Guide, which is kind of... A, a witty encyclopedia, if you will, or it's a, an encyclopedia with with tone, a specific tone, with an angle, and and intriguingly, we were designing and building all this um, about a year before Wikipedia really took off. Yes, um, and and there are a whole load of interesting. Uh, discussions around that trying to come up with something that uh people would like and people would use and evolve and douglas occasionally got involved in the discussions around that um uh but it what he wasn't nearly involved in it as it was in starship titanic but the, the thing is we came up with 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 various things where we said we're going to do the online hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and so loads of people saw you know rushed in when we launched it um and the site totally melted on the first day and we had to to, to do things to bolster it but people kept started writing blog entries or, or sorry entries for the guide about different things just like the hitchhiker's guide and the entries they wrote were all along the lines of um on this blue planet called earth which is the third planet out from south called Sol there is a thing called football and there the humanoids like to carbon-based life forms like to kick around spheres and we're just like, oh for god's sake no because we're so we've thought no we didn't clarify this enough h2g2 is for humans on earth you don't need to keep clarifying that it's all about earth this and, and also you'd have people try and write like douglas which very rarely goes well because people <laughs> really don't get why doug that people think douglas is humour is very verbose and it's not it's the opposite it's incredibly concise it's anyway Unbelievable so, yes well yeah. by water could do it a bit yeah um. <laughs> by water the 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 model for dirk gently um yes michael Bywater, who actually <laughs> wrote Bywater. loads of stuff on the starship titanic site so sorry c- getting back to it which was uh that was not what happened stop what happened with starlight lines was that you had a few people who found it and found each other and they decided to start role-playing the ship and role-playing the company and using basically just this forum system, which was basically, you know, just let you put your name and uh, a load of text, they started creating an entirely imaginary world. Well, not entirely imaginary. That's the thing. Um, it was based within the, the 
constraints that had already been set out by the the canon, the small amount of Starship Titanic canon that had been set mm. out in the game and on the website. And they decided to evolve that. And they kept going and going and going and having loads of fun. And was, the, was the novelization later? That was after the, the game, right? Uh, the novelization, I believe, came out. Ar- well, it was around the same time as okay. the forum took off. So, I'm, I and I've, I, it's a good question actually. I've no idea how the novelization affected um, the world uh, within the forum. Um, the novel was written by Terry Jones in three weeks um, because Douglas was meant to write it. Then he decided not to write it. Then decided he would write it. And then a year passed and he hadn't written it because <laughs> it's Douglas. Douglas and, yes. Right. So. Um, uh, so, so one of the things that, and sorry, feel free to butt in at at, at, um, uh, at any point. One of the things this showed was this theory about communities being games, right? Communities yes. are non-zero-sum games in which people get to improvise together, um, and they construct a reality and or, or, or whatever kind of reality it is, including one that is very much based on our current reality, but possibly with other incentives. Because the question is, what is the incentive that is driving people to spend their time and prioritize posting stuff here instead of going out and getting on with their lives? And part of right. it is to do with creation part of it's to do with improvisation and humor and also getting respect and admiration from their peers when they do something so it's a kind of collaborative improvisational game where people kind of partially one up each other partially collaborate on improvisation because they love to create and they love to collaborate and they hate blank paper right (laughs) this is one of the key things is that you need to give them just enough constraints and enough of starting material, such as the Starship Titanic world, and then they'll go and rush off. But if you just give them completely blank paper and say, go on, create yes. massive things, and they just go, what? I don't know. It's a bit too blank, yeah. Well, I think that was the same with H2G2. It was like, okay, in the same way that Wikipedia catalyzed an encyclopedia out of nothing by saying, we're writing an encyclopedia, you know what they look like. Um, it, 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 catalyzed, it did exactly, almost exactly the same thing, except it was a... Um, it was supposed to be the, the Hitchhiker's Guide Encyclopedia, um, and that, and that, as you say, that led them astray a bit because they were they were they were writing them in the wrong tone, or they, they were trying really hard to write like Douglas and failing painfully. Um, but it did settle down. There's 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 still a, a decent chunk of stuff there, and and it's 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 still going, is it? The BBC yes, bought so it and then it migrated away again, or something? With H two G two. So what happened was the BBC bought it when TV basically. Effect. Well, the BBC bought TDV at the last minute just as it was about to run out of money. You know, we were hiding behind the banks of computers being shot at by the intergalactic li- liquidators, to pull in <laughs> an analogy. Um, and suddenly we fell through a wormhole into the BBC. And uh, w- uh, <laughs> we were there for, well, I say we, I had actually left the company shortly before that. Um, but you were still on the forum. I was still kind of on the forums and, and, and a whole bunch of us. There's a, there's a crowd of people, a, a very small crowd, a handful of people who've been involved um, in uh, – we've kind of stuck together and done stuff around Hitchhiker's Guide. We helped out somewhat with the movie. We actually wrote some bits for the IT crowd for the, like the DVD and some publicity stuff around it. Um, and also for the uh, two of us did the BBC's BAFTA-winning version of the Hitchhiker's Guide text adventure game. Um, which was turned it into a kind of graphical adventure, which was fab. Um, and I've seen that one. Yeah, it's it's so so there, there were like three or four of, of us: myself, Sean Solly, Jim uh, Shimon Young, Jim Lynn, and the late Tim Browse. Um, and we had tons of fun doing all this stuff. And uh, yeah, sorry, I'm I'm rambling again. So, did you have a question? <laughs> <laughs> sorry. 
I was, I was just, just trying to do help establish what H2G2 is. Um, let's, let's see if we can get Heather back on again, because and, and, she's much better at being a foil to you than I am, because I know all the stuff already, so I'm, I'm maybe assuming too much. Uh, but it is, well, while, while you try, it is fabulous that this is, well, I'll tell if we get Heather back. Ah, uh, you got me back. Yay, we have a Heather. So, well so what, what, what you missed was that um, yours was saying that communities are non-zero gum, some games that people improvise together, um, which I thought, I th- thought was something that, that you'd like particularly. And what helps create those envir- environments to be non-zero sum? Because I think this is some of the same questions people need to address, not just in entertainment games or games that seem to be fun, but in making online civic action happen, governmental processes happen, um, any business happen, anything we're trying to get a bunch of people to work together to make something happen, especially if they're at remote distances. I think it's one of the skill sets we need now. Mm, That's so true. And and this is one of the things, you know, the, the, one of the most overused terms in, in our industry in the past few years is gamification, right? Because um, people have realized that... What people think of usually when they say gamification is points and badges, is, is, is sort of pellets to keep you on the right hamster wheel. Right, which is, which is partially true but also tragic because you just see them kind of rad, like shotgunned everywhere. And right. And sometimes it's so ineffective, and it and but it also really it, it it's it's cargo culting, you know. It's saying oh, mm. the it's taking the symptoms as the cause, um, and there are reasons, there are fundamental psychological reasons why things like achievements and points and badges work. But if you don't understand them, then you will apply those kinds of features in totally the wrong way. Yeah. But it's, again, it's almost looking, if you think about what you're saying about the movies representing um, Lawnmower Man or trying to visually represent you know, what, what digital community looks like, often it's, I can visually see this, therefore that must be the thing that matters to people, rather than sort of internal experience of meaning that's being created between people and how they behave, why yeah. they put time in together. And it's, it, it just come, I mean, those things are coming together for me only because you were talking about that earlier. Right, same with gamification. I could see badges and points. Go to Foursquare. Okay, I could see that. Yeah. What they see less is how everyone feels about knowing where their friends are. And go, like, I was at a at a birthday party the other day, and, and yo, that's where I saw you. And Kevin saw them Foursquare and came by, and they could see each other. Like, that's the meaningful part of it. Mm, but you exactly. can't visually represent that as clearly. Well, it's interesting. So, so then I ask you, what what or is it? There's because I I mean, this is something I wonder about. And one of the things that I find fascinating, for example, about uh, you know the, the goldfish, the, the the crashing goldfish uh, example is one that sounds a bit extreme, but there is another example that is much more applicable. What is the is, crashing goldfish? Did I miss? Oh, I think you might have done. It was to do with right. why text why text works better than three D sometimes for being able to build a world. Is that it doesn't break? <laughs> well, partially because it doesn't break, but but because if I want to conjure up a crashing helicopter full of goldfish that then animate all around the place, I can do it in text in one sentence, whereas it takes months of, of animation work, right? Right. But right. I, I type one that sentence. But another sentence that I can type that is far more useful, but just as hard to do in 3D, is um, yours winks with a wry smile on his face as if he knows something about this particular thing, right? Now, the emotional bandwidth there is huge. But trying to do that in 3D, as you've, if you ask anybody who tries to animate Second Life characters, for example, is really hard. 
Um, and in Second Life, for example, um, there is strong use of, even though um, there is full 3D and the vast majority of the screen is taken up with 3D representations, people use the emote command a lot, which effectively takes us right back to text games because there are some things that you just can't do in 3D fast enough as a player. As, a, as somebody controlling the situation. Um, and you need... And so this is... I think this comes back to what you're talking about. Why is it that meeting face-to-face can be so much better? And, and, and I think part of it is to do with emotional bandwidth, right? It's to do with being able to pick up uh, body language. It's, um, and it's also being able to pick up all the incidental facts about somebody that they don't consciously emit. So one of the things that for example, is appealing about chatting online, for example, on IRC, is um, the extra five seconds, right? If you're... Yes. Right? It's, it's, it's why you can be so much wittier on IRC or in a chat room than you can at a party. Because at a party, you've got to give, like, an answer within one second or two seconds, whereas in typing, you've got an extra five seconds. And, and for, for, for me, certainly, but for what it sounds like for Kevin as well, that five seconds makes all the difference. But also you when you... Have, yeah. don't have the vulnerability of being seen, although then you also lack the emotional communication of being seen. Right. Well, you have to um, work harder to, to, to communicate it, right? You, it's also, it, so it favors you, be, it favors you your, your, your prose writing skills and your ability to communicate emotion in a few words um, instead. That's the sort of, so it obviously attracts people who, who, who like words um, more than um, physicality to some extent. I think, I think that, that, that's very true of it. But, mm. but that, that meant that, that you know, but there were, there were, there were all, the, and there are, you know, Twitter is, Twitter is this sort of, um, the modern incarnation of this, where um, t- somebody uh, somebody said that Twitter is optimized for banter. You can you can you can do these little one-liners and bounce them back and forth, um, and the funny ones will get propagated, and the, the other ones will be ignored. Um, and it is it is it, they've sort of managed to take this, these um, little parallel things, these, these things that, that would go on in small spaces with a small number of people, and make it parallel and happen worldwide. And that, I think that's that's a but it, you, I recognize the sort of the, the lineage all the way back through these other text things that we were doing back in the 80s as well. Mm. And so, but you said earlier, um, Gilles, that the community building has to do with having people create something in a zero-sum way. How in a non-zero-sum way. In a non, I'm sorry, I apologize. Right, in a yeah. non-zero-sum way. So how does one create those conditions of being non-zero-sum? How do, how do you make it possible or likely that people will collectively want to, want to view it that way? Right, and, that's, and that is a really hard thing to do well. I think one of the key things that said earlier, I think you were actually uh, unfortunately disconnected at the time, um, there are things people love doing together, such as collaborating and improvising and creating, but people hate blank paper. So you need to seed it with something, and you need to give some constraints. Um, there's people, communities, I think we've all seen this with when, when running communities, is that communities evolve into to fit the space that they are given. Right, and they'll evolve to to use whatever tools you give them. So they will evolve their own methods of communication, and and um, they and often pick up extra bizarre. Um, God, what's the term I'm looking for here? But but ticks or 
or aspects of their communication using some of the tools. So, so like, for example, a, a perfect example of this that is everywhere is the smiley, right? The smiley is an emotional bit of a communication that evolved purely from the fact that we happen to have punctuation and we can put it together in certain ways, right? And all communities on, in online spaces will use their tools in these ways to somehow sometimes take the bizarre artifacts that are available and often completely unrelated and use them in some way to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to communicate. And it will be completely different for each community. One of the things we had with H2G2 um, in the early days was, well, it's still going on, was we have a kind of... Um, I say we, I haven't been there in years, but <clears throat> or haven't been involved in years, um, a kind of emoji, right? So emoji is the Japanese um, icon set for doing uh, like smiley faces and all kinds of things. And you have, you have emoji... It's much more elaborate. Right. It's much more elaborate. And the, thing, and the question is, why is it much more elaborate? How did it evolve that much? Because if you look at most chat apps... Um, that do th- there are loads of chat apps that will automatically take a smiley and replace it with an icon of a smiley face, and some of them will take a semicolon dash close parentheses and do it into a winky face. And then you look at what Skype has available. I'm just going to click the icon now, and there are something like a hundred of these icons there now. Um, and uh, and with H2G2, we had a set of these icons that had different ways of invoking them, and the community kept using more and more of them and then asking for more and more and it got into this kind of feedback loop where they would ask for more brightly colored icons and then the the art crew would give them more brightly colored icons and then they'd keep using them and then they'd ask for more and more icons until we had like hundreds of icons in the system to use in chat. Now, how is it that, firstly, how is it that everybody else communicating online seems to have done perfectly well without these so far? Um... And but you know, but also, what can you learn from the way the community uses these symbols? Why are they important? And what kind of communication has what what kind of communication would end if you took those icons away? Right. Um, And it was also an example of uh, a community growing in symbiosis with the people who run it and responding to, to, uh, to its demands. I mean, this is one of the things is that the more, the more power, the more tools you give your community, the more they will demand from those tools. And the uh, second life is, is the ne plus ultra of these, as far as I'm concerned, uh, these days, in that we have a bug tracker full of all kinds of requests and feature requests and loads of people who, who demand that, that or, or ask nicely often. They're, they're lovely people. I know many of them are listening. They're all lovely people. Um, <laughs> Who know how to get in touch with me and frequently will, um, and but that, because there are loads of different ways in acting in Second Life, and, and the interface is, is really complicated, and you can do all these kinds of activities. Everybody wants to push on all of these edges, and they want them all to expand. And, they, and one of the things about working at Linden Lab has been that. I've never worked on a product like this where even if the company was 10 times the size it is now, there is still no way we could achieve everything that people are asking us to achieve. So um, it's... Sorry, I've once again rambled off hugely and I may have detached some... No, 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 no. You're, well, you've kind, of, you've kind of made an interesting point about when you give things that help um, you know, communities grow, constraints, uh, saving it with something, giving them tools that people will... Will kind of grow to use the tools that you give them, and that the more you give them, the more they'll demand. But 
Um, all this to say, how do these things make a non-zero-sum environment happen? How do you keep an environment from someone trying to do what, what might get called winning in an environment, mm. even though there might not otherwise be that kind of point? Because you can see that in business as well, right? Like I'm going to mm-hmm. be in charge of this. I'm going to have the most status. I'm going to have the most whatever. I'm going to stop other people from this or that. That's an instinct that we think is supposedly really encouraged. Yeah, uh, and our culture. Yeah, that's antithetical to collaboration. Right. Um, it's. I think there's kind of two different issues. There's actually how do you bring people in to begin with, and then how do you keep them there? And oh, well, and actually, that's, sorry, the third issue is how do um, you keep them from trying to dominate or rig the thing to yes. their place? Exactly. How do you how do you make a positive, collaborative, happy tone for the place, right? Because one of the interesting things that happened in parallel with the Starlight Lines community, which is that so Star, the Starlight Lines employee forum was only one of a few forums that we created, and there was a public forum for the game's proper site, which treated it as a game and said you can buy this game, and here's the help forum. That one descended into a complete insane flame war that we wanted to stay the hell away from. There were a few incredibly poisonous personalities on it. And it was awful. And so, what? on the one hand, uh, and this is where I think, uh, Heather, you have, have much more experience than I do in terms of community, active community curation, which re- re- requires you to get in daily and take part and listen to things and, and respond to people, but also work out how to shut people down effectively because, because you always need to be able to shut people down. Um, but also how do you provide initial starting tone that is wonderful? And there was an experience I had recently. Um, there's a game coming out soon that has gone back into closed beta called Glitch, which is a multiplayer uh, web-based game from the people who actually created Flickr. Um, and before they created Flickr, they made a game called Game Never Ending. So this is from, uh, this is from uh, Stuart? Uh, yes, Stuart Butterfield. Butterfield yeah. Project? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's Flickr, it's this. Flickr grew out of a feature of a game. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Flickr, when it launched, was a flash chat room. I don't, most people don't remember this, and then they mm. realised, oh, we're really good at sharing photos. Let's do that. Um, and the thing about Glitch is, I was playing it recently. It's gorgeous. The art is gorgeous. The tone is amazing. The writing style is fantastic. It is so warm and so loving. And something I, amazing I found about Glitch was that I'm running around Glitch as my character, and I've got these you know bubbles and milkshakes and all the various things that Glitch gives you, which are incredibly cute. And I'm running past somebody, and I thought, oh, there's a random person I've met before. And I gave them something without them asking. I'm just saying, oh, hello, here, have this thing I picked up. And then I went on my way. And then I stopped and said, that was a, what the hell made me do that? What the hell made me do this sudden random act of kindness? Okay? It compared to other things where I'm kind of out for myself. And this was one of the, the other obvious places where this happens a lot that has done a remarkably good job of nurturing this environment is Burning Man, right? So, right, right. Obviously, I live in the Bay Area. I now must bang on about Burning Man all the bloody time. Um, but do you go thing, to Burning Man? Yes, I, I actually went for the. I, I've I've been about seven, eight times. I first went in. We've had a couple shows that are related to Burning Man. We did one with Kestrin Prantera, who sort of tumbles the RVIP lounge, and also Shlomo Rabinowitz. If people want to look back in our archives. Who's oh, yeah. someone who, who really organizes slash tumbles at a camp. And I think it's the most successful social platform I know. And it's a great place to learn about. If you want to think about how to run cities differently, how to manage big companies differently, there's a tremendous amount to learn there about decentralized organizing and creating conditions for certain kinds of 
performance or behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, uh, and right. And so, the, so what, the was it, what was it about the, about the game that made you decide to give something? Well, it's really, cause I, and this is what I keep asking myself. There's, <laughs> there's certain amounts of real loveliness in the tone. Certainly the tone, it, it's clearly not for everybody. The game clearly isn't for everybody. But the, the, the stuff, I've had such positive experiences with it, even though at the same time, so, so Glitch is a game that, that is utterly beautiful and at the same time cunningly hooks into your various, um, you know, Skinner box buttons and other psychological gamified buttons, um, like with, with cast iron claws and, and drags you into addictiveness. Um, but you don't really mind because you're having such a fun time. Um, and, uh, and I think it was because part of it is because it made me, some things made me so happy, you know? Some things made me so happy, and the interactions you're encouraged to have with people are so pleasant. And also, I think they've also been very good at minimizing how much damage and griefing you can do to each other as well. How, how is that minimized? Because there isn't actually that much medium for expression. Um, it's one of those things where you've got chat rooms, um, but you've when you chat to each other in person, you've only got small text bubbles and you can't really, that some game environments are much better for griefing than others. It's, and griefing is kind of how much can I stop you doing from doing what you want to do? How much, how much can I irritate you and put in your way? It's kind of bullying. Yeah. Sorry. Bullying really. Bullying. Exactly. And and the term griefing, I don't know if you've had discussion of griefing before, but we have not, Go ahead. It's um, it it came out of like uh, multiplayer online games, um, especially uh, deathmatch style games or, or shoot 'em ups, especially things like Counter Strike, where what you'd have is you'd have people who are meant to be on the same team as you, and they'd start shooting you for no apparent reason, and because they going, just wanted to shoot something and they could see you. Well, partially that, but it's it's basically they're trolls, right? And it's the manifestation of trolling in online games. They want to get a rise out of you. They want to get a reaction, and they're having fun. Um, that's that they're playing a game with a different winning condition. Their winning condition is that they piss you off, not that they get the most points. Um, and so, in Second Life, we have a, a large infrastructure now to do with griefing because one of the, 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 the you know, the Second Life being so incredibly expressive and giving you so many different ways to manipulate the environment is a double-edged sword, right? As, as one of my colleagues recently put it, to give, because we give the power of scripting and creation, um, it's like, welcome to Second Life, here is your box of hand grenades, right? Right. Yes. Um, and the, the, the power of creation and the incredible expressiveness, especially of scripting, which is the thing that really brought me to Second Life, of, about what happens if you give people a programming language in a shared community. Because mm. that's, that's what, like, from Lambda Moo and Ning and all the other things I've been involved in, that was one of the really big things that I kept coming back to. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's amazing, but at the same time, as a community maintainer, as somebody who has to moderate what's going on, it's a total bloody nightmare. Right. And <laughs> what you're, you know, this is why people, community moderators, you know, an inexperienced community mon- moderator will often make the mistake of turning the profanity filter on. Right. You just go, oh, does this stop people swearing at each other? Excellent. And they turn it on and then they wonder why things have, you know, <laughs> descend into even worse behavior as a result. Um, because 
because now they're, they're actually having to make physical, graphical objects to be rude with rather than just exactly. using words. Yes. Exactly. All their, their it, it, outlet, it, it, they, their rage, their negativity comes out in a different way that is usually more creative and harder to block. Um, and Glitch um, doesn't really give you much room to do that. You can't really stop somebody else from doing what they want to do at least not in my experience with it so far in the early levels. So you've got to really get quite far into it, I think. And by the time you've got that far into it, it it's a gradual... So this is something else you see in logging communities is um, can we give people more power based on their experience? And you assume that the more experienced they are with your community, the less likely they are to be a troll and the more likely they are to contribute. Mm. Um Right, I mean, Meta Soldier, you know, asks you to pay $5, and then once you've commented more, I think you have to comment on, or you have to listen to or respond to a certain number of things before you can post an item to say, here's what I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's, there's, and there's, a general, there's a general sense of listening, and that listening and kind of time spent with someone changes things, and I think that's... I think that's very true. I think, you know, gener- general, generally, contact between people, meaningful contact decreases, you know, anger and jealousy. Not always, but definitely yeah. makes someone more of a person. You might still hate them, but you might have a more rounded idea of why you hate them than just sort of, Yeah. You know, and it's also, and this is, right. And this is the, the thing about why is, as you said earlier, about meeting people face-to-face. Why is it that people can be complete? bastards to each other online for want of a better word oh, people so. can be complete bastards to each other face to face too yeah Believe but, me. <laughs> oh no they, oh, yeah. they totally can they totally can but uh, the, the it's interesting I, i'd be interested to know from online community moderators or people who've 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 dealt with trolls a lot online or people who've had massive flame wars online when you finally get to meet that person face to face what are they like? Certainly, in my experience of hearing from people who've done this, 90% of the time, um, the, the real-life interactions tend to be very cordial. Or the person is actually much more shy in real life than they... And, you know, on, online, they're a total loudmouth idiot. And, and in person, they're quite, quite quiet. And that's sort of the classic bully thing, right? That someone's insecure, yeah. and that's why they're sort of, you know, reaching out to somebody to give them a hard time. That's not unusual. I think um, the thing I've been really successful doing in live performance uh, with groups of people together is that it's possible to use a sense of being in public to bring out the best in people. Mm. Because if they feel seen, especially the thing that's worked for me in the kinds of performances I've done is if you let them get attention a different way, a good way, but also in a way that's revealing of who they actually are, mm-hmm. then it makes it harder. It kind of defangs them, right? Yeah. And it that's... makes it a lot tougher for them to then jump up. And, and this is something I came to in part because I was doing a lot of stand-up and try and changing the form of what I was doing at these shows where I make cookies with the audience. I started doing interactive shows because I performed, in, you know, worked in this interactive environment and I wanted to use the things I was learning. Mm-hmm. The web and I was like, well, if you really read somebody publicly, I mean, I'm not saying you never have anything negative to say about anyone, but if you're doing a public performance, you will have the ramification of doing that with other people. You just will have to deal with what happens with other people watching you give them a hard time, and that can be used to bully, but you can also, you know, use it in the other direction. 
Mm, yeah, and that's why you know the 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 whole aspect of as you say with like stand up comedy is how do you deal with hecklers, right? You can hecklers give you the opportunity to either get the audience even more on your side or to completely lose you. Right. Well, it depends on, how- on your goals. I mean, part of what I'm teaching when I'm teaching and presenting or when I'm doing the stuff I do is if you have a social goal of connecting people, which most stand-up doesn't have, right, right. so much. My do. If you, that's your goal, then you need to um, think about that and how you're handling, with the, handling mm-hmm. the heckler. I mean, yeah. there is a way to tell somebody they're absolutely wrong and not destroy the audience connection and along the way, but that's not as hard to do in stand-up because in stand-up the premise is that you're there to be in charge and you're there to give people our time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that then you can get away with that. We don't really have so much time left. I'm kind of curious to ask you about your time at Ning, which really doesn't exist anymore, which looked like sort of at one time was going to be the best and simplest solution for people who want to create private, very simple, off-the-cuff social networks. That we're it's, separate from the giant Facebook or Twitter that people are all in. Um, yeah. And it, it's sort of gone by the you know, wayside, I guess, it's it sort of failed. So why do you think that happened? And do you think anything's filling that need? Well, it's interesting because I think <laughs> this is a draw parallel, actually, with, with Second Life as well, which is that um, mm. Ning is doing actually very well. It's profitable. Yes. Um, and... Uh, I'm part of a couple of Ning communities um, that do... I think they've found a good niche. One of the things... One of the reasons that they kind of uh, are a lot less prolific now is that they cut out their free plans. Um, yes. And this, in practice, was... I think it saved the company because uh, they said that the successful communities that are doing well well, this is actually going to cost you properly now because, let's face it, you have... This is clearly worthwhile for you. If you have 500 or more people then are using this thing and you're all on it and you're all chatting, then this has real value and it's costing us to maintain it for you and we can't do it for free. But what How it do you get was, 500 people if it was never, it's not free to get into it? How do you get them in the first place? Well, uh, I mean, it's inter- this is, uh, also comes back to... Uh, firstly, I think that being free to begin with, as you say, was a huge boon. Um, but at the same time, it also comes back to what Maché, what we're you know, in the conversation last week with Maché Chiglowski, with yes. Pinboard. Pinboard was never free. Um, it's always... But, but Delicious was. So, th- so he had a sort of pipeline from Delicious of people mm. who got fed up with that being broken. Um, and, and they said, How do, what's the Delicious replacement? Oh, there's, there's, there's Pinboard. And, oh, and he's going to take my money and guarantee that it's not going to go away and go weird and get taken over by somebody who wants to turn it into photographs. Right. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I think, it does, I think there's, there is that definitely a match there of the um, if you pay for it, then, then you have more say thing going on there as well. And I think that is, is, that's kind of true of Second Life as well, isn't it? Um, there's a certain uh, amount of freeness there, but in order to do anything serious with it, you have to sort of buy land and, and, and then, then you're buying a chunk of a server somewhere. Is, is, is uh, that fair? Kind of. Um, it, it's a bit more complicated than that with Second Life. You can actually, it, it is possible to, to have a great Second Life and do loads of things without paying us a penny. Um, but certainly, if you do pay us money, and please do, please come pay us lots of money, um, then you, for example, you get land. But, uh, and land is the main way in which we make money. Is, is, is the vast majority of our income comes from land rental. But we also have an, uh, an economy, a freely floated, floated currency, which you can buy and 
then use in world to buy things and so for example um uh second life has a very has a very active economy um full mm. of things like for example fashion there is a huge fashion community in second life um and it's worth looking around some of the f- if you if you google second life fashion blog right you'll come up with tons um that of really actually really nicely done second life fashion blogs uh that show the the huge variety of content that people that normal people at home are creating um and and some some of them are actually uh, uh i think there was one ex linden who went off uh to to the far east for a year and the way she supported herself was literally um selling clothes in second life and that was enough to support her her travels and her, and her her life for a year um so so ning is still ning is still going well um and so yeah it, it's a lot less prolific because there's a lot many fewer free communities but 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 the company is succeeding um second life is also profitable and and doing very nicely thank you very much um the uh so um yes sorry <laughs> i think i think i've come to i've given you your answer now i can shut up <laughs> um yes. but I, I was interested if uh actually if i can um because uh, i think kevin like uh, i think there was there were some things we were talking about talking about that I well the, I mean, the, the other about. example i wanted to bring back up which which ties back into the if you give people a place to talk and a, a small amount of context, they will construct a community out of out of nothing. Was was the Mornington Crescent community, which I think is going to take a chunk of explaining, but I, 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 it's something that that fascinated me and and you too, I think. Yeah, um, it's so second. So Mornington Crescent, just for because it wouldn't surprise me if there were a few. A minority of the audience has no idea what it is. Um, is a game <laughs> that was popularised by an old British radio show called I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, which was a kind of celebrity panel game. Or is the antidote to celebrity panel games, as it advertises itself. Um, and uh, it, was, it was basically... Um, so the BBC had these um, radio panel games where people would come on and, and try and be, you know, answer questions or, or whatever. And I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue was um, uh, an improv parody version of this where they'd be given very silly games to do, like sing one song to the tune of another, or um, th- uh, they had a whole range of these, these things, and a bunch of improv comedians would, would try and construct something like this that was, that was amusing. And Mornington Crescent um, actually originally started out with a bunch of the, the people involved in that sitting around in the pub um, and trying to um, convince other people in the pub that they were playing a game when they weren't. And yeah. so what you do is, is um, you say... You, you use the London Underground as a basis for this, and you say um, I'm underground station names, um, and then you, ha- you bullshit an explanation of how you get from one to the other. Right. So an example... We could, should we have a quick round of Monitor Crescent? We have a quick round on. of Monitor Crescent, but Heather All has right. to join well, this, will be, this will be a good, a good wrap-up, all right, if I can follow. You, you witty Brits. Okay. Um, uh, but how familiar... You might want to pull up a tube map. We could, we could do it with San Francisco... Um, I have okay. no internet connectivity here with you guys. So. Okay. So, let, so let's do San Francisco. Yes. Uh, but what is morning? Well, okay. Let's. But we'll have morning <laughs> prisons as the terminating move. But go on. <laughs> um. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to start on Embarcadero. Right. So. Um. Are we just it, making up a story about being on the Embarcadero? No, hang on. We'll, we'll do it. We'll do a few moves, and then because I, I think Twenty Fourth and Mission is the obvious next move from there. 
Ah. Well, that's tricky. Okay. Then I think I'm going to have to use a token and play 22nd Street Caltrain. Uh, Oh, God. Okay, so if you're opening up the Caltrain, um, that presumably means you're closing off the end Judah. Because I was going to go out to the sunset now. Um, uh, good. Tyson, you uh, get on public transportation. I don't know uh, what we're doing, you guys. <laughs> so, so this is the, the, the basic. The point of this exercise is you don't know what we're doing, um, but we keep doing it anyway. And you and you're trying to infer you a set it, of rules for you this. You do it with some exist. kind of commitment. So that it almost sounds like something for real. And then I'm going to yes. pattern match like crazy. Yes, 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 exactly. Um, and it was originally it was originally done with. Yeah, if I was doing it, I'd be like guacamole. I would have hit like by the third choice. I would have gone like to the Easter Bunny or something. <laughs> well, right. no, it's just, well but it, you know, it starts out with the underground, and then people will, will play. You know. Um, um, the pa- Paris Metro, or bring other random things in, and then uh, and make up arbitrary rules that, that says them do this. And, and there, are, there is notionally a large rule book, and there's a whole sort of culture about this game that was that was on the radio. Um, and then when the internet came out, people said, "Oh, we should play this on the computer." Um, and so people wrote um, like the world, the world's simplest um, UI, which was a text box for you to type your name in, a text box to type your move in, and it would append it to a list. So it looks, it's like an IRC chat room, except there's, um, all you have is basically a log that's appending. Yeah. And the thing about doing a monitoring present implementation online is that it's the kind of game where that is literally the most complex monitoring present implementation you can build. Because, because there are no rules, it means you can't really, impl- unless you build something that looks like it has rules. Um, what, so you're, you're collectively improvising what sounds like a game. Is that there's another one in, uh, in um, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, in the radio show called Bordeaux, which sounds like they're playing a board game and they're rolling dice and they're moving counters and doing various things. And obviously they're not. They're just making the noises. But you can't help but imagine, what is this game they're playing? They just picked up a green card. Where does that go? And just, they're, they're, it's the, the cargo culting again, again. And, you know, this great- is also a very British sense of humor. I mean, I think it would work in Canada. I don't think it would work in the U.S. Because to me, when you deliver that stuff comedically, it's about this sort of dry, deadpan commitment to, uh, to seriousness, right? Like, right. Python but- is funny half the time because they're delivering insane things with great seriousness. Yes, and, but also they're referring to a vast body of stuff that you only know bits of. Um, the Python is, is definitely influenced on this. So, so Python, they will refer to sort of big chunks of cultural history, but they'll also yeah. make random shit up and refer to that too. Um, well, as, so, though it was, as though it happened then, right? Like here's yes. the guy who was the brother of King Arthur and blah, 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 blah. But one of the interesting things about this is, is it's not just a performance for the people who are listening. Um, this is fun for the players, right? Yes. And so, of course, because you're playing. Right, yes, exactly. and that's the thing is, how can you play a game where there are no rules and where anybody can win at any point by shouting out Monte Crescent and still enjoy it? But by the normal standards of how people design games, this is not a fun game at all. And yet, people who play it and love it clearly enjoy it, and it's fun. For, you know, it's fun enough fun that it's worth building servers for it, and people keep bringing it up and up again. So, so what is it that makes it a game? 
And there's uh, the one of the things that's fascinating me for years is um, is storytelling games and other things where the rules are much more flexible. And what you're doing, and this is where it ties back into the Starship Titanic community and everything else, and communities being games, is that it's not about it's not a zero something. It's and it's something where you are being asked to to evolve rules together rather than take an existing rule set. And that's yes. much more fun, especially if, if everybody involved is committing to that. And that's the kind of thing where it's much more about being able to communicate and much less about having hard rules and hard implementations around it. And the distributed nature of the internet means that um, the kinds of games, just like uh, one of the things is that, that's useful about the internet, it, it's the 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 you know, the Rule 34 principle, but in a nice way, in a clean way, um, which is that people of like minds who are interested in the same kind of interactions can find each other and do these beautiful collaborative creations that might never have evolved otherwise. Right. Well, I want to thank you for spending so much time with us, Yos. Hope I'm saying it correctly. Thank you. I, I say yours. Am I getting it wrong? It is yours. It is yours. yours I'm sorry, Heather. I directed you at the start. Yes. Yours. 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 The, the second one. Yours. And yes. is there uh, is there anything you want to let people know about that you're working on, like a project or? A... Um, there are interesting right. things going on at Linden Lab that that uh, we have hinted at and the CEO has talked about that are interesting. There are interesting projects of my own um, and that may you may hear more about in the future. Um, I will <laughs> simply be remark- give myself an overinflated and frankly unrealistic mystique by just hinting at those rather than saying anything that would be far more boring. Well, this is your um, moment to say a URL quite quickly if you want to give people I, something. Sorry, a URL, uh, twitter.com slash yours. Frankly, it's the, the, the best place to follow what I'm up to because one day I will blog again, but the, Twitter is much easier. How many people say that? We all say that one day I will yeah. blog again. <laughs> and one day Britain will have an empire again as well. We will. So not, we will, yes. You, we all need to blog again. An Kevin empire of blogs. Mm-hmm. Kevin well, and I are yeah. separations. <laughs> we, we are, one day we'll reclaim the empire. I want to thank our sponsor, Hover who's been really terrific to stand behind us. If you like this show and you want to help support it, or you just want a better place to put your domain and want to transfer it, or you learned that GoDaddy supported a horrible piece of legislation that will break the Internet, just you can transfer your domain to, to Hover, and uh, they'll do it by phone if you want to do it online. And if you use T-U-M-M-E-L, Tummel, uh, we'll get a little bit of a kickback, and you'll get a discount. So... Please do that. Please support Hover. They're great, very simple, easy to use domain hoster. I want to thank Kevin. Any projects you want to let people know about that? Real quick before um, we go. Nothing comes to mind at the moment. No, I probably think of it after we shut down, but at the moment, no. Okay, and our producer Andrew Hazlitt in Baltimore. Uh, uh, work with the new modern on the show, and thank you, we'll Andrew. be back. And yes, yes, and we'll be back here. Uh, Soon, with Dave Weinberger. And that's going to be next week, but I think in a couple of weeks. We talk about what's going on in WB Back with the Sun. So, till then, everyone, have a great night and uh, subscribe to the show if you want to follow it on iTunes. Leave us a review and let us